Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Martina Hingis, Gabriella Sabatini, and today's guest was just recently featured in their fall campaign. When I was a kid, we couldn't even buy Tacchini in the United States. It was an aspirational thing, and now it is available worldwide, and I cannot think of a greater gift for the tennis fan, player, or if you just get an iconic tracksuit for a friend or a t-shirt from the Paris Masters or the Monte Carlo Country Club, you will be the happiest person alive. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. A red take complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. The towel was originally created to deal with the slipping and sliding that happens in hot yoga. A red take complete is the official towel of Peloton and their tennis towels are ultra absorbent. Beautifully designed works of art. The colors pop. Sweat management is a real thing. I'm playing with wristbands and headbands all the time. But the towel is key, and there is nothing worse than a towel that is not absorbent. If you just can't get dry, you cannot play well. This is the solution to all those problems. See them at A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com and use the code SHAP20 in all caps for 20% off of your order. We have a special show for you today. He was born and raised in New York City and from 1990 to 1998 with his pal Bobito Garcia created an underground hip-hop show on the campus of Columbia University that was instrumental in launching the careers of Mob Deep, Nas, and the Wu-Tang Clan, to name just a few. He is a prolific DJ, podcast host, and New York City tastemaker. He is a great tennis player and has an absolute love and passion for the sport. He is a great friend of mine, Adrian Bartos. Known on planet Earth as DJ Stretch Armstrong is today's guest. My man, you are the closest friend I've, I think I've ever interviewed. So I, we got to see how this goes. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> now, are you in bed I'm in formerly known as do or die, currently known as do or dine bed Yes. That's it. What's your weather? What's going on over there? It's uh, It's been overcast. It was beautiful yesterday. You know, you could definitely tell that we are living in abnormal times. Um, at the same time, I couldn't think of a neighborhood I'd rather be in because there's a sense of community here. People are taking the pandemic really seriously, but there's also a really nice kind of outdoor vibe. Gentlemen, you hear, in addition to being one of my great friends his serve comes out of the sky due to his 10-foot-long arms and his 6-foot-6. Six six. He is one of the most prolific and, and really pivotal DJs in the history of hip-hop. What he did was something special. He's a tennis friend and a friend, and that is... Uh, Adrian Bartos, also known as DJ Stretch Armstrong. That's right. It's funny because, you know, Stretch's music and I guess tennis would be more of an Adrian Bartos thing. But as you know, over the last few years, I've been trying to 
I've been trying to merge those two identities. <laughs> well, we're gonna do we're gonna do that dance today. We're gonna we're gonna slice and dice between tennis and music. So let's do it. Let's get it on. Now we were just talking about Bed Stuy. Let's move right into the first set. It's the off the court report. Why don't you continue about what you were saying about New York City at the moment? I mean, it's 2021. It is the middle of January already. Where where is the city at? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you could really talk about New York City as as kind of a monolithic, cohesive place because through the pandemic, anytime we would dip into Manhattan, it was like another world. Um, you know, a lot of people that have the the means left New York City. It was a ghost town. Literally, you could drive around and you had the whole the whole all of Manhattan to yourself driving around. There was nothing going on. I mean, Soho nothing. was empty. Um, at the same time, you know. Uh, you know, Brooklyn has, for the most part, felt like a, a normal neighborhood, just trying to deal with a abnormal situation. Um, through the summer, uh, during the protests, uh, Brooklyn was just a, I mean, you know, the reality of what sparked the protests uh, as as abhorrent and troubling as it as it was and and remains. Uh, there was a sense of uh, of purpose and community and togetherness in Brooklyn that was that really made me kind of really happy that I live here. Um, I would never live in Manhattan again. What has it been like being an expecting father during this moment? Do you guys have to wear like special protective <laughs> coverings and, and 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 whatnot? Did I just spill the no, beans? No, no. I mean, we've we've taken the pandemic, you know, about as seriously as you can. Uh, you know, I, I think that if we were to get infected, I think we'd probably weather the weather the storm pretty well. But I'm not trying to get anyone else sick, um, and I'm not trying to get sick even at all. With that being said, uh, I think having going through a pregnancy, which I'm not, uh, my better half is, uh, and having a baby during a pandemic, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I like to think that we're timing this really, really well because by the time this kid is ready to kind of go out and walk on her own, you know, with with the assistance of her parents the pandemic will be in the, in the rearview mirror but right now being at home all the time it's great i'm going to i'm going to be able to spend so much more time with this girl that under normal circumstances i wouldn't be able to because i'd be traveling and i'd be working a lot more so um hopefully it's all timed um to our to our benefit yeah i mean Unbelievable! A lot of ba a lot of babies coming vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic. Uh, it seems. Yeah, to be. yeah. I, I don't think we're, uh, we're we're not unique in this one. It's pretty. It's a pretty popular endeavor these days. Yeah, man. We could put a <laughs> soccer. We probably put a soccer team together with everyone who's having babies. <laughs> uh, let's move into the second set. This is see on the court report. We typically talk, you know, to whatever whoever it may be about their observations and pro tennis and all that kind of thing, but I'm not going to do that with you. You have a new show on Apple radio. That's right. Uh, Apple music has expanded their, their, uh, their programming and they created a new, 
I think they've created a number of new channels. I mean, the first one was Beats, Beats One, and one of the new ones is called Apple Hits. So Bobito and I have a show there. We've done eight episodes. Uh, the seventh episode was an MF Doom tribute, which got a lot of traction uh, internationally. For our listeners, MF Doom, Metal Face Doom, was announced deceased. Uh, he was a Ilmatic undercover rapper, lyricist with a funky, funky style. He wore a metal helmet, like a like a mask, like a cartoon. Yeah, a mask. It was. It was actually. It was basically based off of like a. I mean, the original one I think was like a four ninety nine Chinatown special. This guy was a friend of yours. You guys have a very special story. Um, do we know what happened to him? Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't COVID related. I'll just leave it at that. Um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, when you think about our radio show uh, broadcast from Columbia University's WKCR 89.9 FM, New York City, which uh, is a show that a slot that I got in 1990, and I asked my new friend uh, Robert Bobito Garcia to join me. Uh, Bob was uh, wearing a number of hats uh, at Def Jam Records, and we became instant friends. Um, and our friendship kind of evolved simultaneously as we embarked on this journey of of, of doing a radio show in New York City that became this really pivotal platform for just about every important 90s hip-hop artist and you know so through that show uh we befriended a lot of people in the culture and um actually predating the show bob bob knew mf doom he wasn't mf doom back then he was zev love x of the group kmd uh and if you look at the gas face video right Bob is actually acting in a, in, a, in a very small cameo. He's not playing himself. He's playing a uh, a dude in a in a whack rap group trying to get a deal. And standing to his left, while they're talking to Gilbert Gottfried, who's playing the stereotypical hustling uh, label executive. Shyster, uh, right? Zev, Zev Love X is standing right next to Bob. So Bob and and Third Base and and KMD, they, their relationship goes back even prior to, to, to our radio show. But, of course, once we splashed the radio in 90, he was one of the first artists that came by. And, um, you know, he recorded much of his uh, seminal debut album as MF Doom, Operation Doomsday, in my home studio. And Bob actually put the record out in 1999. So we're, uh, you know, we've been involved in his career, but also, uh, you know, Bob and he were, were really, really tight friends, and, and he was my homeboy. He wrote his rhymes in your crib. He was at your house. He was at That's my house for three weeks putting it down, Craig. I mean, this guy, <laughs> he would work until his eyes would shut, and then he would he would let them stay shut for an hour, get back up, and go right back to it over a three-week period. It was crazy. What's the genesis of this new show? Um, how would you describe the new show to, you know, some people that maybe wouldn't know about it? Well, it's a mixed show, first of all. I don't want to get it confused with what we were doing on NPR, which was a a podcast. This is a music-based show in which Bob and I play whatever we want, and that ranges from hip-hop to soul to R&B to reggae to Latin to 
it's really anything and it's super eclectic we kind of we alternate one week I'll, I'll dj first the next week he'll dj second sorry he'll dj first and and uh you really if you're into eclectic music but from a very kind of new york centric lens then the show is for you and that is apple radio correct it's a- apple that's, radio. that's apple that's apple music hits which apple is a part music of hits. apple music and the show is specifically called stretch and bobito radio now you know one of the great crazes of the pandemic has been the advent of the DJs on Instagram. Uh, Dean Nice really, you know, I guess broke it off in a way that is, I don't know, I guess just sort of once in a lifetime, you just can't His, make it historic, up. Historic, historic. What, what can you tell me about the Instagram DJ live set proliferation? Well, you know, it's the uh, it's just a way of of DJs, you know, uh, adapting to a messed up situation. The the great thing about DJing on online virtually is that you don't have to worry about people dancing. And for me, that's great because I love so much different music, and a lot of it I can never play in a club. So now I can kind of do my thing. At the same time. I'm not a huge fan of being in my house and by myself <laughs> DJing for, you know, whoever, you know, being being watched and listened to through a computer screen. It's um some people have have really run with it. Um I'm not that into it. Well, I will tell you um it was a thrill for a lot of us to see you um you played Rihanna's birthday, I think. Writers, you played Rihanna's. Something. I don't think it was her birthday, but it was. Uh, yeah, Fenty did a did like a. They had a new line out, so uh, that was the first live that I did, and I didn't. You know the the controls of the Instagram. It's you know first of all, it's like I got these big hands, and it's all on this little phone. I didn't have an iPad yet set up, and you know it's stressful when when Rihanna pops in the room and there's seventy thousand people and and your shit's not working like i'm telling you i was i was i was sweating like ice cube size <laughs> <Yeah>. droplets <laughs> but while it, while it was working it was good and but also it gave you it's it's given it's given a lot of you guys uh and, and women uh, an opportunity to stack some dollars build your fan bases a lot of people maybe didn't that never might not have known about you have um it's been interesting i think no yeah yeah i mean i think i mean as far as the dollars um i I think some people have been doing you know branded branded things like that like i did a few of them um but uh yeah i mean i think it's a great way for a lot of djs to not just maintain their their presence and and you know remain on people's minds but yeah also expand their their audience and and a number of them have done that i mean you know no one no one's done it like d nice i mean he's he's the unicorn uh it's it's really wild but it's it's um i'm really happy for d because he's just such a lovely man and he's a good friend and he's been in this game i mean you know d was making records in in 1986 as a 15 year old and never really got the not never really got the credit or the checks when he was affiliated affiliated with boogie down productions but it this this year has made up for all that and then some (laughs) 
Yo, the guy is the is the pandemic DJ breakout bazillionaire. Sensation. The yeah. rumors is he's buying houses. Like he changed his whole life. Yeah, he's he's done very well. <laughs> yeah, very yeah, well. Yeah. You know, we we we'd be remiss not to talk about it, but you know, you um, and I both now share the distinction of um, stacked a few bones from the great and you know in a way unicornish brand of tennis clothes tikini that's right you and dj clark kent got in on that program um and and shot a campaign um what was what was that experience like for you i mean to be doing this kind of work in the middle of such a funky year or last year was is i think i think it was pretty good oh it was amazing i mean first of all the the Takini team, you know, which which, you know, when I say that, I, I include you. It's just like a bunch of, you know, new and old friends. Some some of whom I go back with, you know, to the nineties. You know, um, Sung Choi, yeah, creative director. Uh, Su, you know, Su Kwan shot it, um, shot the campaign. Uh, that was just fun and yeah, a, a blessing to have that opportunity in in the middle of the pandemic. You know, to to get a check off of being affiliated with a brand that is so iconic in my life. I mean, I remember when all I wanted for for my birthday was like, you know, a Sergio Tacchini kit when I was like, you know, 14 years old. That's all I wanted. And um, and I think what they're doing is great. I mean, the, the clothes look sensational. I mean, like I said before, to to merge tennis and what I do musically as a DJ is is just yeah, it can't get better than that. That's interesting, right? Like the, the tennis always fed into hip hop uh, fashion wise, whether yeah, it was Fila, right. Alesse, Fred Perry, I think to some degree, Takini. Yeah, I mean, if, even if you if you look at slang for what sneakers are called, I forget which city in in America it is. I'm not sure if it's Detroit, but it's like a you know a, a major urban spot that they still refer to sneakers as tennis shoes 100 percent. i don't i don't know which which city it is i should have come come equipped but but yeah i mean you know you listen to you listen to 80s hip-hop i mean like fila obviously you know takes the crown in terms of uh desirability and and how how much they got mentioned in songs there was there was the fila fresh crew there was a song called put your feelers on it's also really it's an easy word to, to rhyme and, and 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 use but um but takini was ubiquitous in the 80s in the hip in hip-hop track suits the whole thing that was a big deal shout out to gino Choi, chris ivory and everybody at takini you know we love takini last question here what 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 did you do for tennis all year? I know, I mean, I know you guys were bus, bumping it out to Fort Greene Park. I think one of the great phenomenons of the pandemic was you can't get a tennis court. You can't get a tennis court. Yeah, it, for me, it was really frustrating. Early in the pandemic, I was like, yo, tennis is the perfect sport for the pandemic. I mean, even at that point when we didn't know how how contagious this thing was or whatever. I was like, yo, you get two types of balls, maybe like a can of yellow, a can of orange. One person only touches the other. If I got to scoop up your ball and do it with my stick and, and send it to you, but we can totally do this safely. But of course the course was shut down. So it wasn't possible. You know, I was thinking of, can we scheme on, on sneaking into courts or whatever? I mean, at that point we were like bouncing off the walls. Like we got to get 
some exercise. But yeah, once they opened it up, man, that line at Fort Greene, the list would go out at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. And, you know, you got to get there at at least 45 minutes to an hour and line up. Yo, Craig, I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. That line to sign up daily was 70 to 80 people long. Man, the only time the only time I saw an empty court was the day after the, when we played, we practiced at when it was rained. Remember, it rained out, and we basically waited it out. and We dried the courts. We, we dried the courts them up. Out. Yeah, yeah, we were we were you know we got the towels and the brushes. Yeah, um, how are you hitting the ball? By the way, it's a it's a mixed bag. You know, I had a double back herniation uh, a year ago. And so I didn't play tennis for a while until I started going to the gym and, and strengthening, strengthening my core. And, um, and then I think the first time I got on the court was when I visited uh, Vicente up in Cape Cod. And I don't know if your listeners know who uh, the great Vicente Munoz is. Vicente Munoz, a friend <laughs> of the show and an all-around great tennis guy, uh, Continue. Great visual artist. I believe yeah, he. I believe he, I believe he played D one tennis. Played college um, tennis, and he's a great, great, great guy. He's our great. Yeah, so friend. I went up there, hadn't played in a while, and I, I got to tell you, and you know how this is. Sometimes when you when you haven't played in many, many months, sometimes the first time back on, I mean, you could be trash, but you could also maybe play lights out tennis. Honeymoon. And I was smacking the fuzz off of these tennis balls. It was like <laughs> I didn't even know who I was that day. And then, you know, I've, since then, I've, I've only played a handful of times just because um, safety, busy. Um, Baby. You know, Vicente and I, we played at the National Tennis Center uh, about two months ago. And, and we hit for like an hour and 15 minutes. And then we snuck on to the grandstand and played there for about 15 minutes. And... What I realized later was that my limit right now with my body is one hour and I, I was feeling it and I was feeling it in exactly the area that hurt oh, you did. when I herniated my back. Cool. So I've just been taking it easy and, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, you gotta, you gotta play more if you want to want to play it at the level that you expect. And, but, but I, I plan on doing that. I, I, I just got to put some, get my ducks in order. <laughs> Stretch Armstrong, the happiest guy when he is on the court. Let's radio. move into the third set. This is the portion of our show. We talk about your career. Listen, man, I know you was born and raised in New York City. And, you know, through my research, you know, I learned that you went to a special school that I feel like has really shaped the, the man you are. Well, I'm just kind of curious. How'd you, how did you grow up in New York? Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up uh in a household uh with a uh, an immigrant mother uh she, my mom was uh born in in Vilnius which uh depending on what what year you look at has been uh Poland or Lithuania um but she's Polish uh married to my father who's a Jewish you know a, a secular Jewish New Yorker 
very liberal and uh and a tennis player right well that's right well so my dad in addition to being a a violin viola maker fine art painter went to architecture school double major at columbia in philosophy and art history was a high school basketball star played for columbia's basketball team and played tennis and then went on to play you know a a degree of you know pro tennis back then was a was a totally different thing but but he was uh, a he was a really good tennis player and he 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 played in europe played tournaments you said that you said that he took a set from bill tilden i think no no ken rosewall sorry Shit, I mean, so, that's unbelievable. Well, no, but listen, this is, you know, sometimes these, these uh, family myths might just be myths because I've spent 50 years, not 50, I've spent, you know, 40 years knowing that my father took a set of Ken Rosewell. I brought that up to him recently and he said, I don't know that that happened. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, <laughs> at least I grew up believing that this was the case. I, I don't, he didn't say it didn't happen. He just, I think he doesn't, he's not really sure, but I know that he was, uh, he was put in a program in Detroit when he was young to uh team USA um, type of thing where he was, he was being you developmental. Know, yeah, exactly. And, and he just, he didn't like the lifestyle. He left. He's like, he just doesn't want to hang out with a bunch of t- tennis players sequestered. He's uh, like I said, he was, uh, you know, he was a collecting. A violinist, uh, very into philosophy, into art history, um, a painter. So he, that's what he needed, and he needed to be in New York. Um, so that's that's the type of household that I grew up in. Um, my dad, to make money, uh, he taught art at a school called Manhattan Country School, which was on, at the time was on 96th Street between Madison and Fifth Avenue. And that was across the street from where I lived, where I was born. And... My sister and I went to school there. Um, and it wasn't just because my father was uh, a teacher. It was because I, I think more so, it was more about what the school was, which is why my father even wanted to teach there in the first place. And uh, the school was was and probably still remains uh, one of the only of its kind in the United States. Uh, it's a school that was founded by um, the Trowbridges, um, this really lovely couple that were heavily uh, invested in the civil rights movement, and they wanted to start a school in New York City uh, that espoused the values of the civil rights movement. And they did so, and their mission was to to have a school with a great curriculum that, in which no uh, no group of students was a minority or a majority. So there was an equal amount of Latino kids, black kids, white kids, and there was a sliding scale tuition. So if they wanted you to be a part of the makeup of, of their student body, whatever whatever your financial background was, they'd make it happen. You're so in. the wealthy kids play, paid probably more than they would at a typical private school. And I went to school with, you know, many of my friends that, you know, came from neighborhoods that are, you know, underserved and and neighborhoods that most white kids back then wouldn't go to to visit their friends. But my father insisted that I go to my friends' houses and spend time in their neighborhoods. And, you know, I remember, you know, going to going to Harlem, going to Spanish Harlem, going to the Bronx to hang out at my friend's house, 
but to hang out at my friends' houses and and being you know being scared, being intimidated. These neighborhoods, the kids were they, they played harder. They liked to play they liked to play games and tricks on white boys from the Upper East Side. So I was frequently uh, the butt of 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 some of these uh, schemes. But it was a learning experience, and for sure it it influenced me in a way that's profound. And, and I think, you know, I don't think I would have had the career that I've had if I hadn't gone to that school, just despite having gone to a, a high school that was the polar opposite of Manhattan Country School. I went to collegiate, which was an elite boys prep school, right, which, um, which, which was also great because that school taught me how to write. So there you go. What kind of tennis player were you you know, growing up, like, were you busting around New York City? Were you playing out in the Hamptons? Yeah, I was I was more of a summer player. And then, uh, actually, no, that's not true. Like, my dad definitely sent me to, I forget, the bubble up in up in the Bronx. Um, I forget the name Riverdale, of Riverdale, I think. I'd go there. Um, you know, I had a pretty mediocre uh, teenage tennis experience. I wasn't that competitive. I also developed physically later than a lot of people. So well, you said you got cheated. You told me you got cheated, and it, it kind of um, yeah, messed my, you up my mentally. First, my first USTA tournament in the twelves, I went to I had to go up to New Rochelle to a classmate of mine's. The tournament was near his house, so this was a classmate of mine who was faster and stronger, and always beat me on this day. Somehow, I don't remember how I was playing, but but I took the first set 6-1. And I think he realized on that day that the only way to beat me was to start cheating. And he did, and he did so blatantly to the point where it was really obvious to me and I had kind of an emotional meltdown. He took the second set 6-0. In the third set, I got my act together, but it was too late. He had the momentum and he beat me 6-4 and I had to spend the weekend at his house just sort of, you know, emotionally devastated that my friend would do this to me, and that was the that was the last tournament I played, the last USDA tournament. I mean, I I'd play at the at the at the country club that my dad was a member at, um, but really my my love affair with tennis I think really begins as an adult because I sort of I played tennis because my dad played tennis, and it was just one of those activities that. You know, it was social, it was fun, um, but I never took it that seriously. And then when I was 32 years old, a friend of mine, Philip, who's an architect, hit me up and, uh, you know, I asked him what he's up to. He's like, oh, I'm actually going to play tennis at the tennis center. I was like, oh, I used to play there as a, as a teen. He's like, yeah, why don't you come out? I was like, I don't, I don't even have tennis shoes. I don't have short nothing. But I decided to go out there. I, I went out there like completely, uh, you know, I was wearing running shoes. I didn't have a racket. I just grabbed a racket and yo, it was like, you got work back in. I could not believe how much fun I had. Yeah. It was like instantaneous. And the amazing thing was that the pro he was hitting with Chris Popescu, um, not only was he in charge of the ball boy program at the, at the U S open, but he was a huge fan of mine and mm. as a as a teenager listened to my radio show religiously so i get on that court with philip and we're playing and at the end you know he was he was trying to be professional 
while we were on the court but afterwards he's like hey i just want to say like i'm a huge fan i was like oh wow that's crazy and then you know he and i played tennis every week for like five or six years and and um that was kind of my uh getting back into it and it's just one of the things that that makes me happier than than anything else you know when i think back about you when i think about you i think about a lot of things but i i think about this day you and i went to we jumped on the train to with our racket bags we jumped on the subway to go up to columbia we got laced up by howie endelman the coach of columbia university to go practice there and i think we were on our way home or something and we came out we were on the we were on the platform and this brother who who is the train conductor hung his head out the side and said hey man i listened to your show every day for my whole life i saved you know he, he kind of shouted you out and it, you, you kind of do this dance between these two worlds in an interesting way what's the genesis of your hip-hop life wow well again it goes back to manhattan manhattan country school i mean i was in fifth grade and one day it was probably a monday like several of the kids in my class were talking about rapper's delight. They were going they were, wild about rapper's and delight. And they were rapping. They were they were rapping rapper's delight. And I was intrigued. You know, anytime like you got a few kids talking about something that seems like some special, elusive, esoteric thing, you know, you want to get in on it. And that weekend I went to Long Island Sounds, which was the record shop in mm. Southampton. Uh, and I bought rap. I bought Rapper's Delight on a twelve inch. Now, I was already buying records. I was a, I was a music obsessed kid. I started playing drums when I was four, so I was I already had a record collection at at that age. That was like that was nineteen nineteen eighty. I was eleven. Had records. I was. You go to my room and be a drum set. Be records everywhere. I was all about music. But buying Rapper's Delight really set that changed off. my changed my trajectory because now instead of buying like the typical white boy you know, rock albums and like 80s stuff. Now I was buying 12 inches from Sugar Hill and Enjoy and things like Grandmaster Flash and Treacherous 3 and, and all of that. Um, that And that's where that's where the love affair started. You know, I think the, the message, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the message was a record that, that just kind of, you know, after, after Rapper's Delight, you know, a few years later, just took, showed me, you know, so much more like what, the potential of this music. And then, and then after that, it was Run DMC, and then it was a rap. And and around that time, I started, I, I became old enough to understand what was going on on the weekends on mix shows with Red Alert, Marley Ma, Mr. Magic, Chuck Chill Out. And once I got hip to that, then I started thinking like, oh, I want to do this. Even though, you know, I, how do you do this? Like, like what, you know, I had to figure it out. It's not like now, now you have... You have like DJ instructional schools and you yeah. can go to Guitar Center and like walk out with a whole DJ setup and you're good. Like back then, just to find the the right cartridges, the right needles, a DJ mixer, all of this was kind of word of mouth. And again, you know, I wasn't from, I didn't come from a, a neighborhood or a community where there were older guys that could show you this. I had to learn it by myself. And I, and I didn't even meet other DJs until I was actually in clubs DJing professionally. That's when I finally started becoming friends with with guys that that dj when did you get your first turntables uh i bought 
one turntable in 1986. I couldn't afford a second one, and I didn't have a mixer. So until I could, this is this is, this is you know you talk about you know the necessity being the mother of, of invention. I remember my parents went away one weekend, so I took my dad's hi-fi. He had this Kyocera setup, yeah, belt-driven turntable. I took the turntable out, put the turntable on the floor with, next to my my Techniques twelve hundred. By the way, my Techniques twelve hundred wasn't even a, a, a legit one. It was a refurbished gray market. Like uh, when the light went on, like it was a it was a lighter <laughs> shade than it or a darker shade than it should. Uh, it was a, a rock and soul special, and and you guys know what I'm talking about. Who, who know, knows about rock and soul back in the day? And I plugged in the left channel of my left turntable into the left input on the phono input, and I took one of the outputs from the right turntable and put it into the right input of the phono input. And the mixer became going, but just going balanced between left and right. Left became the left turntable, right became the right turntable. I couldn't monitor or anything, but that's how I learned how to DJ initially, which is, which is great because with a belt-driven turntable, you got to be light-handed. You can't, you can't really rock it. So now, you know, the Stretch and Bob, the radio show is, you know, revered in hip-hop culture as really a pivotal, a pivotal moment. You know, our listeners are diverse and interesting people as well from all over the world that probably don't know too much about it unless they saw the documentary on, on, on Showtime and then Netflix, uh, Stretch and Bobito Radio That Changed Lives. That came out a few years ago. But why don't you give me a... Uh, I want to know the story. Yeah, so... Well, you got into Columbia. You were going to college, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let me just say that that that. Okay, so the show. Yeah, I was a student at, at Columbia University at, at at the college, and I was you know fanatical about about new music uh, coming out of New York, hip hop, house music, uh, dancehall, reggae, and a friend of mine was the station manager. Sorry, he was the jazz director at Columbia. Uh, unbeknownst to him, I had attempted to get a show the previous year when I first went to Columbia, and they totally dissed me when I when I inquired about doing a hip hop show. Um, what I didn't know at the time was that two years, two or three years prior, Pete Nice of Third Base fame had a radio show at Columbia. He went to Columbia, and on one of the nights that he wasn't there, or for his show. Uh, some equipment got stolen. And of course, the hip hop show was quickly blamed and canceled. But uh, what Pete has told me was that um, the, the, the way they went about it, the circumstances didn't really uh, resonate positively with him. So, and that's why Pete never came to my radio show because he vowed to never go back to WKCR. And um, it's funny because Pete and I, over the last you know, three, four years, have become really good friends, even though we knew each other through the 90s. And, and Bobito and Pete were actually business partners for, Said he for wouldn't, a few years. He wouldn't step foot back on Columbia University campus. Nope. He was so angry. Nah. Yeah, so, <laughs> he was so um, angry. So when my jazz director friend told me that 
WKCR had a new hip hop show, I kind of freaked out and I went into I went into like full on you know d- determination mode. I went to the station I said, "Look, I came here a year ago. I asked for a show. This is not right." Da 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 da. And you know, I I completely overstated my case because I had no case. I went there and I asked and then I was it. It wasn't like I was, you know, inquiring, inquiring, inquiring. But anyway, I made my case and we were given uh, I mean, kind of like a an, an audition, sort of like the station manager decided that the show that they had, the guys that they had given the show to, would alternate week to week with me, and then they would decide who gets the show. And you pulled Bob, and you pulled Bob Ito in. My ace was Bob because Bob was already in the industry, and through Bob's industry, like. Our, our in our first two shows we had Lati of the Flavor Unit. We had well, hold on, we had Def Jeff. We had MC Search from Third Base. We had we had Africa from Jungle the Jungle Brothers. Brothers. So like we we hit the ground running with like a strong strong show, and and it, it gets funnier. But for our listeners, just quickly, our our listeners, Bobito Garcia is close friend of Stretches. They were the co-hosts of the show. Bobito went to Wesleyan University, I believe. He played basketball. He is a great basketball player bob played professional ball for puerto rico in puerto rico excuse me he is an awesome shooting guard and he is bad to the bone he's also one of the most significant sneaker collector heads there is on the planet and as i said he and stretch are like you know white on rice Right. Yeah, no, Bob, Bob is what what Bob has done in his career is is sensational. I I'm proud of the fact that I I pulled him into radio because radio ended up being like a massive platform for a lot of the things he he would end up doing. Of course, you know the basketball thing is is you know I, I ride the train with Bob and like you know kids come up to us and recognize us for who we are musically, but like half the time they're like yo Bobito yo basketball this basketball yeah. that and I'm just standing there like He's big like a nobody. It's, it's tremendous. So, yeah, so I pulled Bob in and and, uh, and we got the show and, you know, the show ran for about nine years and it was really the, it was a home to, to artists that would likely have a hard time getting any kind of shine on a, on a commercial radio station or a commercial mix show. And, and, the, and the rappers would come right in to Columbia University, they'd bounce up to the office, they'd bounce up to the studio, and they would rock the mic. The show was from 1 to 5 in the morning, so it was all night. It was, I mean, we really, we did everything. You know, we were the, we did security, we did the guest list, we we operated the board, we, you know, kept people in line while they were, you know, waiting to get on, on the air. We, and, and of course the music, it was, uh, and we didn't get paid. It was really... Uh, a labor of love, but it was a, it, you know, it was, a, it was like a, a, a very demanding job, um, which we did happily because to be on the radio in New York City in the '90s, being the the go-to spot for the best music the culture had to offer before anyone else had it, it was a, it was a privilege and a joy. And then. You know, the the culture changed. Bob and I, I think we, we got tired of doing it. But hold on a second. But let me just, before you continue, I understand, too, that, like, all the prisoners at Rikers Island would be listening to everything. And really, the, 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 the history is that you guys broke off 
some of the biggest acts there ever was. Yeah, it's true. We we owe a lot of gratitude to the incarcerated population of the tri-state area because they were our original listeners because they're the ones that are, they've got their radios because they, they, they can't have tapes. Back then they couldn't have cassettes. Later on they couldn't have CD. Like they still have just radios. That's all you got. And so they were like masters of knowing what was being broadcast. And we encouraged the our listeners to write us letters. And for the first two years, like 75% of the letters we got were from prisons. And those inmates would tell their family and friends on the outside about us. And that's how, that's how the word got out. Um, so from, you know, 1990 to 1998, you know, we were the ones that, that in addition to breaking a lot of records, you know, it's the first place you would have heard, jay-z it's the first place you would have heard biggie who rhymed when he was it's 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 not just the first place most people would have heard these guys it's the first place you could have heard these people because when biggie jay-z dmx fuji's mob deep wu-tang big l first time they ever performed to for a public audience was on our radio show so it was like ground zero and um and you know we know what happened to a lot of those artists they went on to you know really be pillars of the culture but it was uh it was our show that that gave them the opportunity to even enter the world like that so uh coming off of the heels of of bobito's uh uh seminal uh basketball documentary called um doing it in the park uh, he was approached by a gentleman uh, about doing a, a, a show, sorry, doing a film on our radio show. And, and and the funny thing is he, you know, as you know, making a documentary can be pretty grueling. Uh, a lot of, a lot of effort, a lot of time and not necessarily, you know, you don't know what the, what the, what the payoff's going to be. And at first he told this guy a friend of ours, a great friend of ours named Omar Acosta, that he wasn't interested in doing another documentary. And Omar said, look, my mother's a professor at Columbia. I grew up on your show, and I'm Latino. I'm Boricua. Like, like, like I know who you are. Like, you guys need to do this this movie, Like, and you need to direct it. When Bob heard that, he was like, okay, I'm sold. He called me up. He said, yo, Stretch, you want to do a documentary with me? Like, I'm going to direct it, but obviously I need you. To, to make this co-produces do the music yada yada i said yeah let's, let's do it like four days later we were interviewing fat joe and cool keith and you know lp and and you know we we finished the the movie um we wrapped it in a year and you know we, you know we got buster rhymes we got raekwon we got jay-z's in it nas is in it no it's a fire list you know i mean everybody's in that movie it's not, it's not an encyclopedic, uh, you know, look at like everything that happened on the show, but we were trying to tell a specific narrative about, about us, about New York city and about the music and also about the listeners. So there's a lot of different narratives, uh, that kind of weave in and out of our show because, you know, the show was so important to the listeners. It was important to the artists. It was important to us. And it was really, you know, kind of a, a, a pivotal, um, platform, at a really sensational 
time in New York City's history. What is the most what is the most famous uh, episode? Well, I think the Jay-Z and Big L freestyle is, I think it remains the most streamed on YouTube, at least, the most listened to live hip-hop moment in the history of the internet. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Big L, pardon the uh, technical difficulty. Check it out. Check uh -huh. it out. Right. Check it out. Put your man on too. You can put it together. All right, all right. Set it off like this. Check it out. Yo, check it. Yo, I got slugs for snitches. No love for bitches. Putting thugs and bitches with my trigger finger itches. All through high school, I had braids. I kept mad blades. Stabbing teachers to death. They gave me bad grades. I cooked the white like a beef steak. Cause my technique's great. And I'm the nigga police hating each state. Cause I'm the neighborhood plan for funk rubber band. But fuck around, you find my silk boxes in your mother's yeah. hammer. Cops drop when my Glock makes the pal sound. I'm from a wild town. You know my style clowns will bow down. And Big L was murdered, is that right? He was, yeah. yeah. But they say that Big L was the he was that he was the illest and then and that he he actually brought Jay Z to your show. Well Big L as a Harlem as a Harlem native, uh he was local and it was easy for him to get to our show and we loved him and we revered him as a talent. He basically he was one of a handful of artists that essentially had the key to our station. I mean, he could come by any time, and he would. Yeah. And yeah, he he brought he brought Jay Z by, and uh, you know, it's it's funny. I think a lot of the, like the the underground heads, they tell a story in which Big L kind of was battling Jay and kind of and and roasts Jay. But I don't look at I don't look at it like that at all. Um, I actually think Jay was a little bit um, ahead of his time at the time. His his. His style was like it was more verbose, more words, and and Jay was also coming off of of doing um, you know that kind of like that triplet almost Das Effect style, right? Which which for some people got kind of played out. So I think Jay Z was kind of looked at like as a little bit like you know not not on Big L's level. But if you listen to the lyrics that Jay Z spit that night. That man got so busy, it's ridiculous. Right. Check it out. I'm too cocky to stop me. You gotta kill me. And when I'm gone, you can still feel me. On the real beat. This shit is eternal. I rock the heavens well. Even if they won't let me in heaven, I raise hell. Till it's heaven. Recognize. Your black cat with the nine lives. Get up off me, nigga. It's bad luck across me. I'm popping crystal, shooting game like missiles. Ass protected or holes affected by this style. I'm act like Goldie. Go back like the Odie. But the goodie. Pulling up and be bitches. Wearing hoodies. They don't be knowing the way I be flowing When I be going I be running the track like Jesse Owens I disrupt the natural scheme The way that you do things with a swing And have them rocking like You say never you run If ever you come It's never you run So fast in your life To never have one Come on and ride the rhythm I produce like chisel Just like the cars I start with knowledge And follow with wisdom For greater understanding I'm landing Blows and knocking sense into those that oppose me. Enticing when slicing through tracks. You're screaming, Jesus Christ is back, and God knows he can rap. Me and L put rhythm on the map, so give him his dab. And me, I just take my And, and for the record, they were not battling. They were just they were just going back and forth and and doing what each of them did, you know, better than anybody else. I, I don't think Jay or, or L was better than the other. Different styles, both murdering it. How would you describe your career? to somebody who probably doesn't know a lot about you, what would you say? 
Yeah, that's that's always a hard one. I mean, anytime someone asks for a bio, I read my bio. I'm like, this is terrible. This doesn't make it, and I revise it. And I've never, I've never been able to have a bio that that really kind of that that really gets it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, it depends well, who's asking. Well, I mean, I mean, you're a DJ. You're, you've been a podcast host. Listen, you, I'm a sure. I mean, you know, I can list all the things I've done. I've, I've, I've DJed. I've, I've published a book on New York City nightlife flyer artwork, which sort of, you know, tells a story of of an era in nightlife that was really important to me, not just as a DJ, but as someone who was exp- who was enjoying club culture a lot. Podcast made a film i'm also somewhat of a historian i've been i've been archiving uh audio from new york city uh mix shows for years i have i I probably have the biggest collection of archived radio audio from 1979 to 1999 Uh, it doesn't have a home yet but it probably will end up being acquired by by a, an institution of higher learning at some point. Oh, that's unbelievable. I also understand you've got one of the most bad-to-the-bone reggae collections in the world. Is that true? No, 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 that's no, not no, true. no, 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 no. I heard that you had, like, the, you were, like, the dance hall reggae, like, one of the greatest collections there ever was. That's not true? No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just very, I just love uh, music from Jamaica, and I've been, I've been collecting and playing it since the late 80s. But when you want to talk about serious collectors, there are serious collectors. I'm not a, I'm not a collector. I'm right. a DJ. So, so if I buy a record, it's because I love it and I want to play it. But I'm not buying records because they are rare or valuable or might become rare or valuable. I just I want records. If I know a song and I love it and I hear something and I don't know it, I want it. And I try to incorporate it into into what I do. I think what I do have is really good taste. So I'm not trying to have everything. I just want the stuff that I love. He's not trying to have everything. He just wants the stuff that you he can't when loves. when you try to have everything. You're gonna you're gonna lose your mind and go broke. Yo, my man, records are expensive now. Whoa. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We don't do a deep dive. I say it, and then you say what comes in your mind. You ready? I'm familiar. Let's go. Your top five MCs, five greatest MCs for you. Rakim, LL, KRS-One, Big Daddy Kane, Farrell Monch. Uh, no Fife, no Eric Sermon. May I, I, Is that a hard I, question? No, no. It's, it's a terrible question, right? It's an impossible question, but it's I think I name, question. I name, you know, I think, um, yeah, no, Eric Sermon's in a group. You didn't say group, so. Okay. <laughs> I just said MCs. Um, yeah, listen, my, l- l- I'll just do four. Rakim, Kane. LL and 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 Karis one for our listeners um, the interview that Stretch and Bob on their NPR show what's good did with Rakim for me is one of the great listens of all time I just oh man I've, I've listened to it many times moving on the greatest producers in 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 hip-hop your top five do you have a five yeah uh, number one is Marley Marl he's he's the blueprint he's the architect everything flows from him uh i would say q-tip q-tip the abstract rock yeah pete rock uh paul c who's you know uh, uh 
a just monumentally important guy that um, was murdered uh, even before hip hop became a global phenomenon. Uh, large professor. The greatest rhyme there's ever been rhymed. Hmm. I mean, that's that's. Woof. All right. You know, this, this you could ask me in ten minutes, and my answer will change. But um, let's go with uh, paid in full. Rock him. Your greatest tennis experience. I see you smiling. No, I no, mean, I just... I've had no. I've, I've had I've had some with you actually. Um, uh, let's see. You know, all right. I think the the most indelibly uh, kind of magical moment I had tennis was um, when Dean Ice and I became we were new friends and somehow um, the topic of tennis came up and he told me that he goes to the U.S. Open sometime and and you know I explained to him that you know every every year. Uh, leading up to the open becomes the the scramble for tickets, right? Like, how do you how do you like where you're going to get your credentials from, your passes, like your your seats, whatever, right? Lead and up. um, lead and he he said, yeah, you know my my car dealer, uh, he, he's a, a Mercedes Benz dealer. He gets he's he's a really uh, he's a, an accomplished de- he's got a, he's got a strong dealership in New Jersey, and Mercedes gives him tickets. He invites me sometimes, so he hits me up. He says, "Yo, let's let's go to the matches. You ready?" And now, now you know how it is. Like during that time, like the calendar is cleared. Like I only need ten minutes to get ready to go to a match. Like someone calls me, I'm out there. And um, that's we a were fact, sitting... by the way. He is the Stretch Armstrong during the U.S. Open is an incredible mover and shaker. He he'll, he goes to the he goes to the qualies for for free. He'll take a ticket up in the nosebleeds. He'll be in the luxury box one night. He'll be, he'll be working like a, the, the he'll be working like the, the crepe stand. Like anything he could do to get into that tennis, he's there. So he hit me up. He said, "Let's roll." I said, "Let's go." He picked me up, and uh, the match was uh, Djokovic uh, against. Uh, oh man, my, my memory. Uh, the Russian who's now uh, no, no. The, the dude who, who smacked himself in the head and and. and to the point where he started bleeding. Oh, Yuzny, I think. Yuzny. Yeah. It was uh, Mikhail Yuzny against uh, Djokovic. And we were sitting first row behind the tee to the left of the umpire. And I'd never seen a top 10 player from that vantage point that low, right in the middle. And it was... Uh, I kind of... I likened the experience to to like sitting behind a Formula One driver in the car, just yeah. that vantage point. And to see really, particularly Djokovic, the, the lateral movement and the of, of, of not just him, but also of his ball was just, it was like, it was, I mean, I, literally, literally I was getting goosebumps. I'm actually getting goosebumps right now just thinking about, about it. it. Yeah, you've been fortunate. You've 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 seen a lot of good tennis, man, and from a lot of good spots. I have. Listen, my my father had my father shared a box in the old Armstrong Stadium uh, in the eighties, where I got to see, you know, Lendl, McEnroe, Connors, Vlander, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, on a regular basis. 
um, he got rid of the box when they revamped the studio and his seat offering, you know, stadium, then, not you know, studio, be- stadium, stadium, revamp the stadium, said studio? Said studio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they revamped the studio. I said that yeah, you that's because I have to revamp my studio when they, <laughs> when they rebuilt the stadium, uh, the, the, the equivalent box was like super far away and he just gave it up, which really pissed me off. Um, but, but the funny thing about that, about that, about that tournament is Djokovic, he won the first set and then, uh, you know, I wanted to see some tennis and I wanted Yuzni to make it a match, right? I, you know, I had great seats. I wanted this to be exciting. So I started like getting my whole section to really kind of like get in Yuzni's ear and give him some, you know, some, give him some inspiration. Yeah. And he started, he started chiseling away at Djokovic and, and it, it, the second set was getting close. And then, literally like he he actually was edging edging out Djokovic and and I, I I'm telling you over about a 15 to 20 minute period I got my whole section just crazy rooting for this guy I you know it was I know Yuzni could hear me because I was I was leaning over and screaming at him and at one point he won a really long rally and he looked up at me and he smiled kid you not a lot of this ended up being on the jumbotron because i was like i was that dude just going just going buck wild d nice is having a great time because he you know he he doesn't know tennis like i know but he was going along with it just like into it i saw other guys that like previously had been like you know reserved blue shirt wall street guys that were now like up and like it became like this this thing that was really palatable and at one point ended up on the jumbotron I sit down, we're calm, and I feel someone come up behind me and put their hands over my eyes. I'm like, what's going on? I turn around, it's Rosie, Rosie Perez, right? <laughs> you know, an old friend of mine, old, you know, really dear friend of Bobito's. She was a guest of ours on What's Good with Stretch and Bob. She was actually on our um, Stretch and Bobito uh, radio on Apple Music Hits recently. Um, but she had seen me on the Jumbotron, knew where I was, came down and, and said hi. And this whole interaction with Rosie is now on TV. <laughs> and it was just like one of those like really kind of charming tennis moments. Usually took the set. Um, and, you know, the, 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 that kind of synergy between fan and player was just really, really alive and, and kind of amazing. And, you know, of course, uh, Djokovic took the third set and the fourth and, and it was a wrap. But, you know, for, for a good 45 minutes, it was like, everything was perfect in the world that's a great story man favorite player growing up Yvonne Lendl favorite player now or players Roger you love you love Roger Federer but what about women what about women is there a woman that you loved that you loved back in the day and what about you know what I I think I think as a kid I wasn't I didn't really follow women's tennis so much I mean I think women's tennis has gotten so much more exciting with the modern game uh you know the 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 pace of the of the wood racket women's tennis was just a little it just as as a as a young as a youngster it didn't really appeal to me that much but now i mean i i love uh i mean my favorite players are probably uh kvitova and muguruza um but you know there's so many amazing women's tennis women's tennis players i mean i I like i loved seeing uh, simona halep finally get hers um you know as a as a as a son of an eastern european woman woman i know something there's something when i her personality just remind it's very familiar to me (laughs) 
Simona Halep reminds Stretch of his mom. Well, we have, we, we might need therapy session for that. Uh, your favorite court? Could be any court in the world. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think you know Armstrong, U.S. Open. Your favorite tournament? I mean, but by the way, for our listeners, Stretch and I have the distinction of seeing Rafa Nadal lose Takedown. on red clay. The Terra Rosa at the Italian Open uh, just a few years ago. But yeah. and by the way, no. I, I have this memory of you eating like thirty slices of pizza. You got off the plane, <laughs> you ate more pizza at the Italian Open than anyone I ever saw in my whole life. Listen, I, I, I got to say, you know, as phenomenal as the Italian Open is, the the food concessions were really disappointing. I mean, you go to you go to your average your average Italian airport and they got better food. I was struggling pizza. Yeah. I was just downing the pizza that, that could be my favorite court, but in uh, tournament, just cause that was such an, like an amazing, you know, 48 hours. But I think, I don't know. I I've really enjoyed the two times I went to the French open. I mean, that was just sensational in every way being there. You're welcome for that too. Uh, the first time, um, I first think time. That's right. That's kind of where Sunita. that's where our friendship really sparked, right Sunita, there at the Sunita French Olympio. Open. Shout out to Selena Olympio. Now, that's right. Okay, ready? Bill De Blasio. Gotta go fast. Mario Cuomo. Overrated. I think. I think his handling of the. Uh, of the pandemic uh, in comparison to our national leadership uh, looks pretty good, but I think New York dropped the ball. I mean, listen, I'm no uh, epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, a public health uh, official, but, but I knew, I knew when the pandemic was here that not enough was being done in the first few weeks. It, it was, it was, I'm yelling at people, get yeah. the fuck home, put a mask on. People were just bugging and I was bugging. AOC. Uh, I'm, I, I get kind of disappointed in friends of mine that try to find uh, faults with her. I think AOC is sensational. I I support her fully, and I I'm, I just really am thankful she is a voice in our national discourse, and, and I can't wait to see what she's going to do over the next 20, 30 years. I'm totally with that. Your greatest DJ gig moment. Behind the turntables. Okay. Uh, Sade, Lover's Rock Tour. She performed at uh, Jones Beach. I went. I went with two friends of mine. I literally cried at the beauty of her performance. And I was like trying to hide it from my friends. Like <laughs> I got something in my eye. She then subsequent to that, she had two shows in Madison Square Garden. I got a call from Epic Records saying... Sade wants you to DJ her after party for her second show at the Garden. So, uh, first show at the Garden. So, of course, I said yes. And the party was at Lotus, a small club on West 14th Street. Of course. It had an upstairs. It was a great club. With high ceilings and a bar and a lot of tables and a sort of dance floor. And it had a really small downstairs with a DJ booth that can maybe fit maybe 60 people DJ Jules who's a an old friend of mine a pioneering DJ DJ of the downtown scene 
really early pro skateboarder and someone that I would go see to DJ when I was like 18 years old and, and just going out for the first time. He's also old friends with, with Sade and Stuart, who's Stuart Matthewman, who's Sade's uh, co-collaborator on all their music. He's the guy that that plays saxophone and guitar. You always see him in the videos. And Stuart's a friend of mine as well. He's a you know great guy. So Jules was upstairs. I was downstairs. And so I'm DJing downstairs, and it's empty. And the next thing I know, Sade comes down with her entourage, and they close the door. Done. Like, you're not downstairs. You're not getting downstairs. The dance floor in this area is probably like 15 by 20 feet it's, it's tiny it's tight and uh, being able to look at Sade dance while you dj let me tell you it 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 makes your dj game significantly <laughs> tighter and i was just having an incredible time you know the vibe was was incredible the concert was incredible everyone that was there was was a friend of her or the group and had just gone to that concert. And I, I have a pretty good idea of the type of music that Sade likes. And I was just playing, you know, all of that sweet shit. And she was dancing and dancing and dancing. At one point, a man who, who introduced himself as Sade's brother said, listen, I just want to thank you. Like my sister is having the time of her life. Um, that party must have ended at around 5, 5.30. Sade was one of the last four people to leave. The next day, I go to the garden, go to the concert. Stuart invited me, check out the show. Uh, go to the green room afterwards, and he's like, yo, we're going to Open right now to have drinks. Open was a, a bar that had um, like collapsible walls on the outside on 22nd Street in the West Side Highway. So I go there, and it's literally like Sade, Stuart, Michelle, who's a really great friend of mine who was Stuart's wife at the time, and like eight other people. Like It's just them hanging out, having a drink. And I'm talking to Michelle, and she's, she's like, you, you know Sade, right? I was like, yeah, I've never met Sade. Now, at the time, a number of friends of mine would hang out downtown and they knew Stuart, they knew Michelle, they knew Sade, but like I was working so much that when a lot of my friends were hanging out doing great shit, I was in a club making money. So I never got to meet her, but Michelle's like, you have to meet Sade now. So, and I had this idea of like what I was going to say to Sade, like, okay, you know, I'm going <laughs> to, right. like, yo, it's like, think of the, the Mike Tyson quote, like, right? Like everyone's, what is it like everyone's everybody got some has shit. a plan until they get punched in the face yeah everyone has a plan until they're face to face with Sade so <laughs> I, I'm standing next to Sade she's talking to somebody and I'm standing there awkwardly waiting for her conversation to end and then once it does Michelle pulls me forward and says Sade I'd like you to meet Stretch Stretch Sade and, and literally I was tongue tied I, I didn't I had nothing to say but she was just incredibly graceful and generous. She said, oh my God, you were sensational last night. She said, the only reason I left was because I had to be dignified. I did not want to leave. And I mean, what more could you want? But there's there's icing on that cake. About 20 minutes later, everyone decides to leave. And Sade leaves with her, with, with her crew. I leave. I hit the pavement. I turn left, walking towards... 11th Avenue 
I walk about 30 feet and I hear, I hear someone call my name, stretch a woman, right? I turn around and it's Sade under a streetlight waving goodbye to me. Perfect. Perfect night. Take Perfect two nights. Take a bow. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is, we, we, we often call it the king of the court where we talk about making changes in tennis. But I think I want to do two things with you. First, I will ask you, though, if you were the king of tennis and you can make a change in the sport, what would it be? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've got no uh, personal stake in this, but number one, I think the way that uh, prize money is is uh, dispensed is just ridiculously unfair to the players that, you know, outside of the top 50. I think uh, one of the other things that I really hate to see is that, you know, until the semifinals, when you're watching tennis on TV, all the good seats are empty. I think that's just a bad optic for the sport. Um, and I think there should be some sort of intelligent way to address that so that when people that might be affected by that optic don't have to see, you know, a sport that might to them look like people aren't just not that into it. It looks so whack. Um, I thought you might say too the camera angles uh, in pro Thank you. Yes, I've, you're right. Thank you for reminding me. I, I'm a I'm a I'm a vocal proponent of the low angle from the backcourt. The cameras exist, and when they show when they show uh, replays or even live, uh, you know, live footage from that angle, it you know I think it really gives the viewer a sense of the of the athleticism, the amount of movement, the speed, the lateral movement of the players and the ball, which just makes the viewing experience so much better than that bird's eye view, which is just boring. And I, you know, I've spoken to producers. I've spoken to, you know, my man who's, he's in the control room. He does, he does audio mix, uh, Jason for, for most of the, uh, for all the grand slams. And He's like, I'll tell the producer, you know, everyone agrees. You, you go on Twitter. Everyone's all the fans are talking about this. I don't understand the issue, what the, the problem issue, is. Generally speaking, is the is the from what I've been told, it's three things. It's it's the first and foremost in many arenas and stadiums. They can't put the camera in that spot because it's too low. and You'd pull out. They need to pull out seats. The second thing is the broadcasters don't like it. They want to see the tennis higher. And then the third and final thing, the broadcasters, the – oh, and, and, and there, there's an argument that it's that you actually – it's hard to see that at the back of the court for an extended period of time. But I do agree. I think they should go to that camera more, particularly when they have that camera in, in the arena. Exactly. And, and yeah. right, we're not asking anyone to, to, to you know, change their, uh, their setup, but – and and no one is saying that that should be the, the the de facto shot, but on at least at least replay on great points, it's a uh, it's a different it's a different viewing experience. And anyone that that is a, a fan of the game that knows the game would would agree. We're one week uh, after literally our democracy was attacked. Uh, we're a day or two away uh, since. Uh, the scumbag president, uh, so-called president of the United States, was impeached for the second time. This time for for inciting insurrection. You're a politically minded and socially minded 
person, I'd like you just to share your feelings about 2021 and what, you know, how you're feeling about it, uh, moving into, you know, moving into the back end of this debacle, moving into the front end of the Biden presidency, you know, and moving into the rest of our lives. Yeah, I, I don't have a very good feeling about uh, the rest of this year. I think, um, you know, Trump's going to be gone, but Trumpism isn't. This cancer has really spread um, to all corners of the country. I mean, even, you know, even here in New York. And, uh, you know, I don't think what we saw on the 6th um, was the end. I think that might be the middle or the beginning of a period of political violence that we as Americans have not seen in modern times. I hope that's not the case, but I think it is. And that coupled with this pandemic, which um, has been handled disastrously, hopefully with a new administration, they're going to be able to make up for some of that lost time and get get the get the vaccination program going to where it needs to be. I'm really looking at 2022 as being a time when we can sort of enjoy our lives and, and, and get back to normal. But I think the next this year is going to be it's going to be iffy rough sledding as they say buckle up <laughs> yeah bu buckle up buttercup buckle up buttercup hey my man listen um just can't thank you enough we've been friends for a long time now and uh it's this has been a lot of fun what's the next show what what, what are we i'm gonna i'm gonna drop this show next week what, what what do you what do you got coming up that maybe um our people can look out for we've got eight episodes of stretching bobito radio up the cool thing about Apple Music is to stream their live channels. You do not need a subscription, but you do need a subscription if you want to access the on-demand uh, right. archive. If you want to go back on them, you got to buy it. Yeah. Also, uh, you can get a an Apple subscription for, for three months for free, so you can try it out. Personally, I think that our show alone is worth the 10 bucks a month. Additionally, our, our, our musical brothers, DJ Clark Kent and Spinna, are also part of the programming as well. So it's a good place to be. Um, and Clark that's really, Kent is uh, just murderous. He is just murderous. He's the best. He's, he's the, the best. best. <laughs> so that's, that's where I would like to draw your listeners' attention. Stretch and Bobito Radio and Apple Music Hits. And you take on all comers. If someone comes to New York City and they're masked up and gloved up, you'll, you'll practice with them. Absolutely. All right. Let's go. Anybody wants to practice yep. with stretch, you let me know. <laughs> and shout to, shout to Slinger Bag because they've outfitted me with a bag thanks to your alley-oop. And that's been, a, that's been a great thing to have. You know, it's, we've had a mild winter so far. And as soon as it dips back up to – dips back up – gets back up to 50 or above, I'm hitting the court with the Slinger Bag. You take the Slinger Bag and you practice uh, social distance with nobody – and that's a pretty good thing. And, and the thing that's great about the Slinger bag, to be very honest, is it's battery out. Like, you, you charge it. So you don't have to plug it in. Most ball machines, you have to plug in. It's a pain in the neck. You don't plug it in. It's got a remote control. It's, it's phenomenal. It's got a remote control. All right, my man, listen. Uh, tell Monica hello, as always. Thank you very much. And Stretch Armstrong. Uh, or Adrian Bartos, also known as the great DJ Stretch Armstrong, you are released. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate it. Huge thank you to Stretch Armstrong, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. 
Arete Complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. They are A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com. The towels are a tremendous gift. Use my code SHAP20 in all caps to receive a 20% discount. I still got a few quarantine classic shirts from last year. They are bad to the bone. See it on Instagram at C-Shap Tennis Pod. And shoot me a note if you want a cop. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.